Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today we are going to read and discuss... Wait a minute. We're not going to read anything. We finished the book. We finished Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Are you guys nervous? Wondering what to expect? <laughs> I kind of am too. It turns out podcasts take a lot more preparation when you're not reading someone else's text for 10 minutes at a stretch. Today we are going to finish talking about the final chapter. Really, we are going to start talking about the final chapter because all I talked about was the last five paragraphs last week. Then we will discuss some stuff from earlier in the book, things I couldn't discuss before, either because I didn't want to give any spoilers away or because of time constraints or maybe I just forgot. Without any further ado, let's review the final chapter of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Chapter 12, entitled Alice's Evidence, starts with Alice being called as a witness and jumping up out of the jury box, but she's grown so big that she knocks the jury box over. If you have a copy of the book, be sure to take a peek at the illustration depicting the jury toppling. I love trying to pick out who's who. We definitely see Bill the Lizard from Chapter 4, The Rabbit Sends in a Little Bill, there's some birds and ducks who may or may not have been pictured in Chapter 3, A Caucus Race and a Long Tail. There's a frog, but he's not in livery, so it's hard to say if he's a footman from Chapter 6, Pig and Pepper, or not. There's a few new mammals, such as a squirrel and what looks like a platypus wearing eyeglasses. There's also a mystery rodent who is completely upside down. The guinea pigs have been suppressed at this point. They're in sacks somewhere, so it shouldn't be one of them. It looks a lot like the Dormouse. In fact, his eyes are even closed, but the Dormouse was turned out of the court during the last chapter, so it shouldn't be him either. So I don't know who it is. There's a groundhog-looking fellow in the Caucus Race chapter illustration, so maybe it's him. Or maybe he's all new like the squirrel. Hard to say. Of course, if you don't have your own copy of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, you can look at the illustration on the accompanying blog post for this episode on aliceseverywhere.com. Now, when Alice takes the witness stand, the sass is in full effect once again. She seemed a little timid around the griffin and mock turtle in chapters 9 and 10, but since entering the courtroom and stealing little Bill's pencil, she'd been pretty sassy. When the king says rule 42, all people more than a mile high must leave the court and that it's the oldest rule in the book, Alice pounces and says if it's the oldest rule, it should be number one which is pretty clever. I don't think I could have come up with that on the fly. By the way, Lewis Carroll's favorite number was 42. 42 is mentioned here. Serendipitously, there are 42 illustrations in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. On a later episode, we will get into why 42 is Lewis Carroll's favorite number. I'm acting like that's a teaser, but in reality, I don't remember why it's his favorite number. I need to uh, go back and research it again. A few other random notes on this chapter, just because I don't know where else to throw them in. Our entire story has been full of puns, yes? Utterly puntastic. But chapter 12 contains the only announced pun. The king makes a pun involving the word fits, and nobody understands it, and he gets mad. Another random note that I don't even know if I should bring up, because I came across it before I was doing detailed research, so I don't remember exactly where it came from. On the illustration of the courtroom scene in this chapter, the knave of hearts nose is somewhat shaded in. Apparently, a shaded in nose 
often represents a red nose, which in turn often represents a person being drunk. I don't know. What do you guys think? The knave kind of comes off as the most sober one in the chapter. I mean, he doesn't say much, but when he does, it tends to make sense and doesn't involve ordering heads chopped off or immediate verdicts being issued. So I don't know about the drunken knave theory. Back to the story. The king is once again in a hurry to get to the verdict, but the white rabbit insists that some evidence be presented. The evidence is a letter that was supposedly written by the prisoner, the knave of hearts, but it's not directed to anyone and nobody signed it. By the way, did you catch that the knave of hearts said they can't prove I wrote it, it wasn't signed? Well, how does he know it wasn't signed if he didn't write it? Hmm? We get a very quotable quote when the king tells the rabbit to begin at the beginning and go on till you come to the end, then stop. That's understandably a very famous quote. But a little later, the king says, if there's no meaning in it, that saves a world of trouble, you know, as we needn't try to find any. I think that's one of the most brilliant things that's said in the entire book, yet I've never heard it quoted. If something doesn't make sense, why waste effort making sense of it? Some people are mean. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Maybe he's just not that into you. No need to waste time figuring it out. The letter that the White Rabbit reads is a completely ridiculous poem. It's actually a rewrite of a poem that Lewis Carroll published 10 years earlier. The sole intention of that poem seemed to be to use confusing pronouns, so uh, mission accomplished, Elsie. The king ignores his own advice, tries to figure the poem out, and with Alice's help, realizes that the tarts have been sitting there all along. <laughs> they were either returned or never stolen in the first place. The queen breaks in with another quotable quote, sentence first, verdict afterwards, Alice gets into it with the queen. The queen and the rest of the cards fly through the air and attack in one of the most famous John Tenniel illustrations from the book. And then, what? The playing cards aren't playing cards. They are leaves falling on Alice's face, and Alice wakes up. It was all a dream. I've always considered it a major letdown that it was all a dream. Why can't Wonderland be real like Narnia? Why can't she, say, find herself in the hallway once again and open a new door and she's home? Something like that. Of course, if it weren't a dream, I guess we wouldn't get that beautiful last passage at the end, would we? Those last paragraphs that I've already described at length. Speaking of which, I want to discuss the last five paragraphs a little more because they are connected to something I promised to talk about many chapters ago. The Alice in Wonderland puppy. The puppy appeared way back in chapter four. So to review a little, after Alice escapes from the white rabbit's house where she grew way too big and was stuck all squashed up in a room with her foot up the chimney, after she shrinks and escapes from there, she comes across a puppy in the woods. She nervously plays with it a while, nervously because she is teeny tiny at this point and the puppy is normal size. She describes it as very like having a game of play with a cart horse. Then the puppy falls asleep and she leaves. The end. Kind of a random little episode. Made all the more confusing because unlike all the other animals in the book who walk and talk and wear clothes, the puppy acts like a puppy. Readers have been flummoxed by this for ages, but I think the explanation is incredibly simple and lies in the final paragraphs of the book. Let's read just a little of that ending again to make sure it's fresh in our minds. Don't worry, I'm not going to cry again. This is the description of Alice's older sister sitting on the bank watching the sunset. And still, as she listened, or seemed to listen, 
the whole place around her became alive with the strange creatures of her little sister's dream. The long grass rustled at her feet as a white rabbit hurried by. The frightened mouse splashed his way through the neighboring pool. She could hear the rattle of the teacups as the March Hare and his friends shared their never-ending meal, and the shrill voice of the queen ordering off her unfortunate guest to execution. Once more, the pig baby was sneezing on the duchess's knee, while plates and dishes crashed around it. Once more, the shriek of the griffin, the squeaking of the lizard's slate pe pencil, and the choking of the suppressed guinea pigs filled the air, mixed up with the distant sobs of the miserable mock turtle. So she sat on, with eyes closed, and half believed herself in Wonderland. Though she knew she had but to open them again, and all would change to dull reality, the grass would be only rustling in the wind, and the pool rippling to the waving of the reeds. The rattling teacups would change to tinkling sheep bells, and the queen's shrill cries to the voice of the shepherd boy, and the sneeze of the baby, the shriek of the griffin, and all the other queer noises would change, she knew, to the confused clamor of the busy farmyard while the lowing of the cattle in the distance would take the place of the mock turtle's heavy sob. <laughs> I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I said I wasn't going to cry again. So, here's the dealio with the puppy. And really, the entirety of Alice's adventures in Wonderland. Since all of Alice's adventures occur when she is dreaming in the yard on her sister's lap, I believe the puppy and everything else in Wonderland is the result of external stimuli sneaking into her dream. Her sister all but spells it out for us in that passage. Alice is dozing away and hears cows mooing, and her imaginative brain turns that into the mock turtle sobbing. Alice's subconscious transforms the real-life tinkling sheep bells into the March Hare, Hatter, and Dormouse's rattling teacups. Dead leaves falling on her face mutate into an attacking pack of playing cards. A dog suddenly barks in the distance in the real world, and voila, a puppy randomly appears in Alice's dream, apropos of nothing as she leaves the white rabbit's house. The dog stops barking in real life. Maybe he was just running by. Maybe he was murdering rats like the terrier she uh, insensitively described in the mouse in Wonderland. But the dog stops barking, and in her dream, the puppy episode is over as suddenly as it began. What do you think? Huh? Have I cracked the code of the Alice in Wonderland puppy? Or the entire book, for that matter? Are all other Alice in Wonderland commentaries now rendered obsolete? I think so. If there are any scholars listening who are perhaps writing a book or essay on Alice's adventures in Wonderland, please do yourself a favor and just give it up right now. Discussion over. I kid. I mean, I don't kid that I think that's what the book is all about, but... You know who I am going to allow to take part in this discussion about Alice's adventures in Wonderland? A fellow named Lewis Carroll. In 1887, 22 years after the original publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Lewis Carroll went to see a play based on his books. Books plural because it included Through the Looking Glass. Lewis Carroll wrote an article describing his thoughts upon seeing the play, and that was published in a magazine. This article meanders quite a bit and touches upon his review of some of the actors in the play, his writing process, how the story of Alice came into being. I'm going to read part of the article, and the article's entitled Alice on the Stage, by the way, to you now. I'm going to do Lewis Carroll a grave disservice and not read the whole thing. Rather, I'm going to skip around to different parts for several reasons, one of them being he talks about some looking glass characters 
and we haven't read that together yet, so I don't want to give away any spoilers. But here are his thoughts on some characters we have met. And I quote, What wert thou, dream Alice, in thy foster father's eyes? How shall he picture thee? Loving first, loving and gentle, loving as a dog. Forgive the prosaic simile, but I know no earthly love so pure and perfect, and gentle as a fawn. Then courteous, courteous to all, high or low, grand or grotesque, king or caterpillar, even as though she herself a king's daughter, and her clothing of wrought gold. Then trustful, ready to accept the wildest impossibilities with all that utter trust that only dreamers know. And lastly, curious, wildly curious and with the eager enjoyment of life that comes only in the happy hours of childhood, when all is new and fair, and where sin and sorrow are but names, empty words signifying nothing. And the white rabbit, what of him? Was he framed on the Alice lines or meant as a contrast? As a contrast, distinctly. For her, youth, audacity, vigor, and swift directness of purpose, read elderly, timid, feeble, and nervously shilly-shallying, and you will get something of what I meant him to be. I think the white rabbit should wear spectacles. I am sure his voice should quaver, and his knees quiver, and his whole air suggests a total inability to say boo to a goose. I love that description of Alice being eager and curious and ready to accept the wildest impossibilities, because that totally jibes with my vision of Alice as a girl who isn't traveling through Wonderland creeped out or scared, but is in charge, and for the most part, unafraid. My opinion of Alice differs with her creator, however, in her being gentle and loving and courteous to everyone, no matter what their social standing. I think there are a lot of clues that Alice is a wealthy, spoiled brat, especially coming up in Looking Glass, and she is super rude at times, you know, to the creatures she meets in Wonderland. So Elsie and I disagree on that. I do enjoy him comparing her to a dog. Because some readers have speculated that Lewis Carroll made the puppy act like a puppy because he doesn't think much of dogs. He doesn't like them. But we see here that is certainly not the case. He considers a dog's love pure and perfect. The characterization of White Rabbit, with his nervous shilly-shallying and feeble ways, backs up what I've always thought of him. As I've said before, I find it very curious when people say he is their favorite character. He's pretty unlikable. But I suppose if you are a fan of characters like Felix Unger and George Costanza, the White Rabbit, he might be your guy. I've got to find a way to include the phrase shilly-shallying in my daily conversation. (laughs) That is just fantastic. Lewis Carroll throws in a sentence a little later on about the Queen of Hearts. I don't think it will be a surprise to any of us to hear him say, I pictured to myself the Queen of Hearts as a sort of embodiment of ungovernable passion a blind and aimless fury. I'm going to keep going with this Alice on the Stage essay. It is just so chock full of good stuff. You'll recall how the tale of Wonderland came into being, how Lewis Carroll was on a boat trip with the real Alice and her sisters. Here is his recollection of those events and how difficult or easy it was for him to come up with new ideas. Many a day had we rowed together on that quiet stream, the three little maidens and I, and many a fairy tale had been extemporized for their benefit, whether it were at times when the narrator was I, the vain, and fancies unsought came crowding thick upon him, or at times when the jaded muse was goaded into action and plodded meekly on, more because she had to say something than that she had something to say. 
Yet none of these many tales got written down. They lived and died like summer midges, each in its own golden afternoon, until there came a day when, as it chanced, one of my little listeners petitioned that the tale might be written out for her. That was many a year ago, but I distinctly remember, now as I write, how, in a desperate attempt to strike out some new line of fairy lore, I had sent my heroine straight down a rabbit hole to begin with, without the least idea what was to happen afterwards. And so, to please a child I loved, I don't remember any other motive, I printed in manuscript and illustrated with my own crude designs, designs that rebelled against every law of anatomy or art, for I had never had a lesson in drawing, the book which I have just had published in facsimile. In writing it out, I added many fresh ideas which seemed to grow of themselves upon the original stock, and many more added themselves when, years afterwards, I wrote it all over again for publication. But, this may interest some readers of Alice to know, every such idea, in nearly every word of the dialogue, came of itself. Sometimes an idea comes at night, when I have had to get up and strike a light to note it down, Sometimes when out on a lonely winter walk, when I have had to stop and with half-frozen fingers jot down a few words which should keep the newborn idea from perishing. But whenever or however it comes, it comes of itself. I cannot set invention going like a clock by any voluntary winding up, nor do I believe that any original writing, and what other writing is worth preserving, was ever so produced. If you sit down, unimpassioned and uninspired, and tell yourself to write for so many hours, you will merely produce, at least I am sure I should merely produce, some of that article which fills, so far as I can judge, two-thirds of most magazines. Most easy to write and most weary to read. Men call it padding, and it is to my mind one of the most detestable things in modern literature. Alice and the Looking Glass are made up almost wholly of bits and scraps, single ideas which came of themselves. Poor they may have been, but at least they were the best I had to offer, and I can desire no higher praise to be written of me than the words of a poet, written of a poet, he gave the people of his best, the worst he kept, the best he gave. End quote. First of all, they lived and died like summer midges, each in its own golden afternoon. How beautiful is that description? Second of all, how lucky is this guy? Hearing him talk about ideas just visiting him out of the blue? It reminds me of Paul McCartney describing how he woke up one morning with the tune of yesterday in his head. It was just there. I think most of us who are writers, or who have attempted to write, adhere to the principle that to improve as a writer, you need to actually write on a regular basis. I had a roommate in college who was trying to write a screenplay, and his screensaver on his computer spelled out the words, seat of the pants to the seat of the chair, as a reminder that the screenplay was not actually going to get written, unless he sat down and wrote it. On a more, say, legitimate note, I recall a Flannery O'Connor quote that proved surprisingly hard to find, but basically said that unless you're a genius, you need to write every day, and that she wrote for two hours every day at the same time and same place, and sometimes nothing came of it, but if an idea did reveal itself, she was there and ready to receive it. I think that's more the writing most of us are used to, <laughs> not being visited upon by the, uh, the elusive muse. I'm going to leave you today with a bit more from Alice on the stage, not because it reveals any surprising facts or revelations, but because I think it reveals several of Lewis Carroll's personality traits. We will have entire episodes devoted to this enigmatic man in the future, but for now, I think this passage in which he discusses 
the performance of the little girl playing the Dormouse in the Alice in Wonderland play he just saw gives you a hint of his humor, his enthusiasm, and of course his intelligence. And it goes a little something like this. And last, I may for once omit the time-honored edition not least, for surely no tinier maiden ever yet achieved so genuine a theatrical success, comes our dainty Dormouse. Dainty is the only epithet that seems to me exactly to suit her, with her beaming baby face, the delicious crispness of her speech, and the perfect realism with which she makes herself the embodied essence of sleep. She is surely the daintiest Dormouse that ever yet told us, I sleep when I breathe. With the first words of that, her opening speech, a sudden silence falls upon the house. At least it, it has been so every time I have been there. And the baby tones sound strangely clear in the stillness. And yet I doubt if the charm is due only to the incisive clearness of her articulation. To me, there was an even greater charm in the utter self-abandonment and conscientious thoroughness of her acting. If Dorothy ever adopts a motto, it ought to be thorough. I hope the time may come when she will have a better part than Dormouse to play, when some enterprising manager will revive the Midsummer Night's Dream and do his obvious duty to the public by securing Miss Dorothy D'Alcourt as Puck. It would be well indeed for our churches if some of the clergy could take a lesson in enunciation from this little child, and better still, for our noble selves, if we would lay to heart some things that she could teach us and would learn by her example to realize, rather more than we do, the spirit of a maxim I once came across in an old book, whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. Thanks for listening, everybody. We are going to get started on the sequel to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland very soon. We'll have just a few more episodes here to wrap up some final Wonderland thoughts. Then we will experience Through the Looking Glass and what Alice found there. If you haven't rated Alice's Everywhere on iTunes, please do so and help keep our podcast in the new and noteworthy section. Woohoo! And please let me know if you have any questions about Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or Lewis Carroll via social media or email me at heather at aliceseverywhere.com. Talk soon!